Kind Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity. We pray that you would bless this moment and that your spirit would be upon each of us, giving us heavenly insight that we might learn more of you, of your love and your precious grace towards us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. 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 I, I hear a little Caribbean accent yeah, in that prayer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Did I hear a little Caribbean accent? Yeah, yeah. Where yeah, are you yeah. originally from? The Virgin, Virgin Islands. Islands. Okay. St. Virgin... Thomas, U.S. Virgin Islands. Beautiful. Okay. Well, great to have Neville and Jennifer here. Uh, and I think we look really cute here. We, you know, we got Neville in we the red and Jen in the pink and me in the black. Uh, we're so glad you're joining us now. Today's chapter, chapter 63 is titled, Your King is Coming, or in the more familiar Elizabethan King James, Thy King, King Cometh. cometh. <laughs> and uh, this is chapter 63, and it's based on a number of passages in Scripture. So Matthew 21, Mark 11, Luke 19, and John 12. And the Matthew accounts and the Mark accounts are very similar. So, Jen, you don't have your Bible with you, do you? But if I gave you mine, could you read it? Okay, so Luke 19. We're going to read the Luke account and the John account. The entirety? Yeah, if you don't mind. So Luke 19, beginning in verse, let's see, where does it start? Verse 29. And if you can just read that all the way down to verse 44, that would be amazing. Nice and loud for us. And it came to pass when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village opposite you, where as you enter, you will find a colt tied mm. on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, this is King James, huh? New King James. Oh, it's New King James, okay. Because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. Mm. But as they were loosing the colts, the owners said to them, why are you loosing the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought him to Jesus and they threw their own clothes on the colt and they set Jesus on him. Mm. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then as he was now drawing near to the descent of the Mount of Olivet, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should be silent, the stones would immediately mm. cry out. Is that it? Oh. No, then... Uh, uh, what, what verse is it? Doing? I think it goes down to verse 44. Okay. Now, so this is where he's going to warn yes, the yes. city. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, mm. If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Wow. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surrounding you, and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Whoa. Okay, so that's the Luke account. Now, if you can turn to John 12, Jen, if that'll be right. John 12, 12. And uh, I'll read the, if you don't mind, I'll just read the section 12 to 19. It's a little different. So John 12, beginning in verse 12, reading down to verse 19, it says, Then the next day a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. 
Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it. As it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. Therefore, the people who were with him, when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead, bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him, because they heard that he had done this sign. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, you see, you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Mm. Okay, no, so they're not happy, not happy, mm. not happy at all. And mm. that leads us into our chapter. And I don't know how you guys feel, but I just want to start by saying that, that I actually had a difficult time reading this chapter. I was moved. Mm-hmm. And, and normally I'll read the chapter through two or three times. I read this chapter through this morning and I almost didn't want to read it through a second time. Why? But I just, it was too, it was too, it was just emotionally intense. It was too intense. Yeah. And the scenes there of Jesus in almost unutterable, inexpressible grief, like wailing and yeah, weeping. It's almost like you could feel his sadness, man. Yeah. It's, that's how I felt when I read the chapter. And I this think morning. that, I think that Agreed, totally. honesty about emotions is, is particularly difficult for men to bear. Because they're so good at, I'm serious. Because no, it's they're, true. They're so, and it's so necessary for them so often mm. to restrain their emotions and even stuff and hide that they, many of them, you know, develop a survival mechanism of never really even experiencing them fully and definitely not expressing them. So I think it's hard, it, particularly to see a strong man break down is hard for everyone. Yeah, that's a yeah. great point. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. No, I see, I'm seeing that several people are saying on the Instagram uh, feed that they also cried. Yeah. And that's a, that's a great point. I remember, I can remember several times in my life where I've seen strong men yeah. that I have a lot of love for or respect for, yeah. whether it's a father figure yeah. or a dear friend in the church. Great one of my time. dearest friends, Sam Bonello, is one of the strongest, best people I he know. Good my good friend, Nathan Renner. Mm-hmm. When I see these strong, godly men cry, it, it does something yeah. to me. Yeah. It does something to me, and I don't mean to sound, you know, prejudiced here or unkind, but when I see a woman cry, I'm like, oh yeah, she's crying. When I see a strong man cry, I'm like, whoa, this is a, this is a serious. serious situation. And so I can imagine, and we're, we'll get to this, but when there's all of this, you know, this anticipation, this eagerness, this swell Excitement of enthusiasm, and, and, and then Jesus' response is to be... And then all of a sudden he's right. wailing. I think people were completely disoriented. They didn't know what to do. But another point about that, and, and maybe we could develop this more later, but... You know, we kind of struggle with seeing a strong figure cry like that. At the same time, we have to realize that he was manifesting supreme strength when he did that. Correct. And so we'll unpack that when we get to the point where he actually, he's actually wailing. And I'm not... And in, why that strength versus weakness? I'm not saying... No, no, saying and that. I wasn't in any way suggesting yeah. that crying is not... In fact, to me, when I see those men cry, I think these are strong. I'm not a crier. Are you a crier, Have Neville? you ever cried? Yeah, I have to be honest. Um, sometimes some men are, some men are, yeah, most women well, are, but men kind of. It depends on the situation. Yeah. Like sometimes when I'm in concert, like I tend to really be like keyed into the song I'm singing and the mm. message I'm trying to convey. And at times I can be really like, so into it that I get emotional. Doesn't that mess up your vocal delivery? Like, <laughs> <laughs> well. I guess it happens so often that I yeah, you learn. I've been able yeah. <laughs> to sing through. You it, I guess. through. <laughs> it, for me, this morning when I read through this, I didn't actually cry. Like I didn't have any tears, but I was so moved. I seriously considered not reading it through a second time because I feel like 
what this chapter did for me was it took me on the exact journey that the people that day would have experienced, where there's all this excitement, this anticipation. It's echoing from valley to valley, hill to hill. Oh, this is great. The king is coming. And then it just goes complete 180. And you're like, what? And uh, she does a masterful job of, of creating that tension. And then we end up with Jesus weeping. Or reporting that tension. Because that's exactly what happened. Yeah. Okay, so um, the chapter opens with quoting Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So it opens up with this incredible messianic prophecy from Zechariah and then paints really the whole chapter, but begins to paint this picture um, of Jerusalem and of Jesus' arrival there. He sends out his disciples um, and I just want to say this scene here, the, the third paragraph there that begins with, it was on the first day of the week that mm-hmm. Christ made his triumphal yeah. entry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. About halfway, to, uh, say two-thirds of the way down that paragraph, listen to this. All nature seemed to rejoice. The trees were clothed with verdure and their blossoms shed a delicate fragrance on the air. A new life and joy animated the people. The hope of the new kingdom was again springing up. Mm. And, and she's done a great job here of tying together because in the Northern Hemisphere, Passover takes place, as does Easter, around spring. Springtime. So there's this sense of, we, all, we love spring, don't of we? newness and joy and euphoria yeah. in the air. Yeah, that's right. And so there, she's tying together this sort of seasonal expectation, new things, new birds, migration, blossoms, yeah. fragrance, mm-hmm. and now a new Messiah, a new king. Change. Everything. Change. Everything's going to be all right. Mm-hmm. Okay, unpack that. We say change, Neville, what? Well, I'm saying like there's a tra- there's a transition about to take place. Correct. Like, haven't you ever come to a point in your life where mm-hmm. you know something is going to happen? You might not know exactly what, but you just feel it in your spirit, yeah. and even you know, right, and even the the environment mm-hmm. around you sort of it gives seems. a sense of foreshadowing that this is something is about to happen. Yeah, agree. That's a great insight. So she, she says it's almost like nature itself was rejoicing. So then Jesus sends out, do you guys have any insights on this? I just thought it was quite interesting. He sends out his disciples and says, hey, uh, go to this town and find this colt that will be tied. Bring the colt. If anybody asks you any questions, just say the Lord has need of it and they'll understand. You got anything there? Well, about the entry on the colt, uh, it turns out that that was a prophecy. And that's why many of the people were worshiping him because they knew that prophecy. Mm. So, um, and I want to correct something I said when we did the Mary Magdalene one. As yeah. I said, I thought because the spike nard was in the air, that's what signaled royalty to them. But I think it might be a combination of the two. I, I still think the spike nard was in the air because it was like the next day or two yeah, yeah, yeah. that it happened. And so that was in the air because she had anointed him with spike nard. But there was also this prophecy that was being fulfilled through this cult. That's how a king was to ride into his kingdom. And you get this really strong sense that, you know, there weren't these well-defined channels of communication, at least not technologically back then, where you could text a friend or call a friend or they could be watching the television. This all spread word of mouth. And these word of mouth, you know, news channels could actually spread remarkably quickly and so what she says is, is when the disciples went to go get the cult, they're mm-hmm. like fever expectation. This oh, is yeah. it. This is the moment. This yep. is it. Yep. So they're telling people, hey, the king, he's coming. And people are like, what? What are you talking about? So all of a sudden you, you get this increasing swell 
this growing enthusiasm, and before you know it, you have hundreds of people, and then it's many hundreds, well, and then it's thousands. Well, followed them from Bethany. So that because of the raising of Lazarus. And, and, and the thing that happened at Simon's house, and Correct. people were collecting there when he rested on the Sabbath in Bethany, and they went with him to Jerusalem. You know what's really moving to me is uh, the bottom of the page here. Um, Although the cattle on a thousand hills are his, he is dependent on a stranger's kindness yeah. for an animal on which to enter Jerusalem as its king. So the dependency of God on humanity and on the kindness of strangers Beautiful. is really something to take note to of. To think that the infinite, yeah. eternal, illimitable God put himself in a position where, where he, he needed on the something. the resources of those who loved him and Incredible. cared for him. Incredible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's hard. I mean, the truth is, is that for some people, it's hard to accept the kindness of others, the gifts from others. Yes. Right? Like yeah. some people can do that, but others are like, no, no, I'll be fine. Well, he did it consistently throughout his life. I mean, exactly. the woman at the well, you know, bring me a, a drink and he's a Jew and she's a Samaritan. And she's like, what? You're so there's no shame in having a need. Oh, that's right. He he's so dignified human need. It's it's just Oh, really say powerful. that again. That he was beautiful. Dignified human need. Oh. That's right. That's incredible. That's incredible, yeah. He did. You know that's interesting you guys bring that up because as a blind person, yeah. I tend to need. you know crave independence yeah. and let me do it myself. No, mm -hmm. I want to you know, so mm -hmm. that that was some insight there for me as well because I tend to to do that, but then I still have needs. Like I have to rely completely on my wife for some things god forbid i get behind the steering wheel you know what i'm saying so you know and if i if i if i could i would you know what I'm right saying? So, right you're very you know, independent i i try my best to be as independent as possible but or, even know? when you're with people like me you have to tell me sometimes because you know you can forget you're not a blind person so you don't know what people who can't see deal with and you have to be reminded and you speak up and you you tell me what you need and it's embarrassing to me a little bit, but I'm sure it's more embarrassing to you in a way. Do you do you find, Neville, that it's difficult sometimes in situations to just speak up and say, hey, I have a need here, or is it easy? It's reflexive. Uh, it depends on the person, mm. you know what I'm saying? Because some people get offended if you say, I have, I, I can do it myself. Mm. And uh, then, good point. And then there are others who... Are sort of insensitive to your needs so it just it sort of depends on on the situation and and the person but i, I really appreciate that insight with with god the god of the universe yes. the sovereign of the universe saying i need you there's such a broad association in our society between need and weakness or even oh, even, yeah, even yeah, factors yeah. into like some kind of moral or characterological weakness if you have a need, and Jesus just blows that away. In this, I factor. love the fact that yeah. the conversation is going this way because, mm -hmm. I, first of all, I love the line about how Jesus dignified human need. Mm -hmm. I think that's incredible mm -hmm. because we all are needy at some level in some way. That's true. And then I also love the idea that being a needy person is not. A sign of weakness. We all have needs, and but when we create this well, it's sort of one type of weakness, but it's not moral or characterological weakness. Right. So yeah, I mean, because Jesus was crucified in weakness, it mm. raised by the power of God. That's what Corinthians says. That's so such a great insight. It, it's incredible, but there is a, a level of weakness there. We aren't complete within ourselves, and you're admitting that when you express a need, but it doesn't mean you're characterologically or morally weak when you have a need, and that's the stigma that we need to get past. And even the idea that God, the infinite, eternal God, as as Neville said, the sovereign of the universe would have a need oh. 
It's astonishing. It just blows it away for all of us. You know, how much more we who develop addictions and, you know, illnesses and disorders and patterns in our lives that we cannot, and in my experience, I'm a counselor, people cannot get out of their patterns without, of course, God's help, but also human help. Human help. And, and a lot of times the turning point comes when they come to the place where they're willing to admit their need to other human beings. It's easy to do it to God because you just mouth the words and make up whoever you're talking to. But when you're facing a human being and you can't narrate them to themselves and they're going to either react from their own free will, you know, with disdain, like yeah. you mentioned a minute ago, or with grace, uh, you, you know, you're taking a big risk. But that a lot of times marks the turning point when a person actually starts to recover is they start to express their need. Sola Scriptura 07 says healing does not come through isolation. That's right. That's exactly right. In fact, deep woundedness and brokenness comes through isolation. Well, all the 12 step, you know, the whole world, you get a sponsor and you learn, you have formed yep. kind of a hopefully healthy dependency on that counts that that sponsor as you're working your way out of the addiction and also on the group that Ooh. you're going to. Johnny says that one of the, I love this, a great insight, Johnny, he's always got great insights, is that one of the critiques that Jesus has in his diagnosis of, of Laodicea is that yeah. they have no, no need. need. They have need of nothing. Oh, that's yeah. good. That's really yeah, that's good. Hard. That's yeah. good. Okay, so I'm going to read they the last... They well have no need of a physician. Correct. And he wasn't saying that they weren't sick. He was saying they didn't think they were sick. So I'm just going to read this last little bit here. It says, He was about to enter the capital, proclaim himself king, and assert his royal power. This is what the disciples imagine, right? While on their errand, they communicated their glowing expectations to the friends of Jesus, mm -hmm. and the excitement spread far and near raising the expectations of the people to the highest pitch, mm. right? So word is spreading rapidly. It's Passover time, so there's already this heightened sense of nationalism, this heightened sense of sort of religio-patriotism, and the spring is in the air, as we've discussed. And people are flocking to Jerusalem. People are the, the word about the raising of Lazarus is on the street. I mean, this guy can raise the dead, mm. right? So <laughs> there's this fever pitch of mm. excitement, mm. and then kind of an interesting thing happens here. She says that... Jesus now allows that which up to this point in his ministry he had never, never permitted, allowed. which was to be, worshipped. to be worshipped as the coming king, as mm -hmm. the Messiah. And up to this point, like in John 6, he snuck away when they tried to make him king, mm -hmm. but Where here he, he permits it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He's not evading it anymore. He's, he's taking it. Yeah. Well, I, I love the fact um, how it, it's, it's brought out clearly that the reason for that is to elevate and exalt the cross. Yes. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Because at the end of the day, doing something like this would cause all of the people who were watching him at that time to trace his footsteps and see every, observe every move, every action that he would make. Mm. And the irony is that he would end up on the cross rather than on a throne. But in a sense, I, I suppose you could say, you know, that the, the cross was a type of throne. Absolutely. You know what I'm saying? No, I totally and agree. It, and it, uh, of course, created the seed that launched this church, you know, the, the church that, that Amen. came from it. So, Is this crazy or could we apply that to our own reception or not reception, reception of, of worship and praise from other people? Like if, if the king of the universe could be very measured and methodical and uh, constructive... Mm in whether he received worship or not, shouldn't we be the same way? 
Okay, and unpack I that. I don't, I don't have the struggle, but you guys are like highly admired people. And when people want to depend on you in a way that crosses that line, where they're overvaluing you as mm. someone who's always right. Or what does David Asherick think about this passage? And they're not being a Berean and studying it for themselves. What do you do with that? You know, I mean, would it be constructive and right for you to receive that kind of adulation? Obviously not. Um, but you have to be methodical and careful about it. Jesus himself was that way. So he kind of set the example. Yeah, I, I think that the trick for me, and I'll be interested to see what Neville says, I just, I'm just always deflecting. So if somebody mm-hmm. says, oh, you, 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 I'll just say, man, God is so good. Mm-hmm. Man, the Bible is so encouraging. Mm-hmm. Man, I love Jesus. So you're just deflecting. And, and that's not to say. Do you ever say thank you? No, of course. Of course. Oh, if if they're just saying, hey, your ministry is blessed, of course. I'll say, man, I'm so honored to hear that. Thank you for sharing that. But for me, at least, Mm -hmm. I feel like I can sense when it's personal appreciation or God is being magnified. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes, rarely, but sometimes it'll cross that line into the sort of deification Mm -hmm. or idolizing of a person. And when that happens, then I'm, you know, very quick to deflect and say, yeah, God is so good. Neville, you must get that at some level. I mean, I, you're an I, extremely gifted musician. How do you I, handle it? I do, but I'm I'm also very much aware of my... I'm sure there are a lot of imperfections and weaknesses that I have to deal with that I'm not aware of, but I'm definitely aware of all my mess. So whenever anybody comes to me and talks to me about that, sometimes I say to myself, man, if you only knew... <laughs> <laughs> you only knew what I have to deal with, you know, in my own personal life that only God knows about. Yeah, you know preach, what I'm saying? Preach. And that kind of just keeps me, it keeps me level. So most of the times when somebody comes to me, I do the same thing. I, I just say glory to God. People, God I'm good. sure people hear yeah. you sing and they assume that you sit around on a chaise lounge all day with people peeling your grapes for you. And <laughs> I know where you live. I know that's not true. Have you guys seen the bumper sticker that says, God is... Make me the person that my dog thinks I am. Yes, yes. Right? Yes. So yes. so we, other people might think really highly of us, but we're all just very ordinary people. Yeah. Jesus here, however, he deserves is, worship. Right. He deserves. And he's still at, methodical about it. He's very intentional. Restrained, yeah. And, and Neville, makes a, Neville makes exactly the right point, and that is the reason that Jesus here permits it is he's trying to get all eyes on him because, because of, he, because of the cross, because right. of the sacrifice, he wants the word on the street mm-hmm. that the king has come yeah. so that when that king ends up, as Neville said, on the strangest throne in all of human yeah, history, the cross, people are going to go, what? what? What's that? What's going on there? Okay, now we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. So you're not going to leave before you talk about them um, using the palm branches? No, no, no. We're still moving along. So in the paragraph that begins, Christ was following the Jewish custom for a royal entry, about midway down that paragraph, this line I thought was great. We just noted this. Jesus now accepted the homage, which he had never before permitted, and the disciples received this as proof that their glad hopes were to be realized by seeing him established on the throne. Then this line. The multitude were convinced that the hour of their emancipation was at hand. hand. Now listen to this next sentence real quick. In imagination, they saw the Roman armies driven from Jerusalem and Israel once more exalted as a nation. All were happy and excited. 
You know, have you ever like imagined over and over your enemies getting vanquished? I have. When I was a, in grade school, oh, God. I used to imagine, you know, bad things happening because they had hurt me so badly. Right. I can only imagine that these people were doing so, something similar. So Jesus is keenly aware that their worship, their enthusiasm, their affirmation of him is entirely wrongheaded and misguided. He knows that. But wait a minute, because remember we how we established that the thirst for freedom in the human heart is so real that God, even God himself, has a measure, even though they were misled mm. in their application of it, God himself has a measure of empathy of course. for their desire to see him on no, the throne. No, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, Jesus permits it here, yeah. knowing full well that the, How the sort of... How they're going to interpret it. Yeah, but, but your point is a point very well taken, and that is that the, the essence of the human heart, the desire of the human heart to not be under bondage, mm -hmm. to not be under the control of other people or other nations, that's a legitimate God-given... Desire. And how much more for a nation that was called by God mm. himself, you know, to this national autonomy, which they lost due to their own backslidings, but still there's that thirst in the heart. So then, you know, you can just imagine, and I thought this was quite cute, you know, the, the biblical narratives say that as the, the, the crowd is increasing and the volume is swelling and the enthusiasm is growing, people are looking at one another saying, who is this? Yeah, this guy is <laughs> Can't you see that? Like, who, who are we celebrating? Right? A lot of people don't know. They're like, all they know is that something exciting is happening and a crowd attracts a crowd, a mob attracts a mob, and there's this gigantic enthusiasm and some percentage of people don't really even know what's going on, but they just know like, oh. And so they say, who is this? What does all this commotion signify? And there's confusion. So can I say something about that? I looked up um, crowd euphoria. And one of the lines I found from the research about crowd euphoria is all present experienced a temporary feeling of euphoria at being above and beyond law. So, Whoa. and this happens with riots. It happens Whoa. with a lot of different events where there's like a swelling of a crowd mm. in sort of lockstep with one another emotionally. Well, think of that Capitol Hill riots, that's right? right? And there's an element of euphoria there. So yeah. that's what's happening here. But I love the part about they've been lifted above law. And I know that there's really wrong-headed versions of that, like the Capitol riots and like any riot for, for that matter. But in this case, I think that they were under such bondage and there was such oppression going on emotionally that they did temporarily feel like this man will deliver us from all this and we won't have to bow down to these authorities anymore. And there was an exhilaration and a euphoria bound mm. up in that. Yeah, there's no question that when you get the sort of mob mentality together and then they're all moving together, they're chanting together, they're, you have this sense that we're unstoppable. We're an unstoppable well, force. Well, and, and someone stronger than them is the one that's freeing us from this That's thing. leading. Yeah. And so they're like, whoa, this is it. This is the big mm -hmm. moment. And mm -hmm. it's, it's important for us to recognize that the sort of psychosocial cultural baggage that was on the Jewish people being subordinate mm -hmm. to a pagan nation, they were... You know, they say a desperate man will grasp at anything, anything that you throw him. Mm -hmm. You know, a drowning man, he'll, you throw him anything and he'll yeah. grab it. So, so this is, they don't know the theology. They, a lot of these people don't even know who Jesus of Nazareth is, but they're looking for anyone, anything, anyhow, mm -hmm. anybody mm -hmm. to get them out of this predicament in which mm -hmm. they find themselves. Mm -hmm. And so this swelling enthusiasm, and again, mm -hmm. Jesus resonates with the human desire to be free, mm -hmm. for freedom Christ has set us free. Mm -hmm. But he also knows that what, they think Messiah is going to do and be and say, that's not what's going to happen. And the basis on which he would do and say those things, like 
they got into the situation of bondage that they were in through sin. And so the Messiah came to free them from the sin that led them into bondage. They want to skip that step and just get free of the bondage. Mm. He wants to do a deeper work. And they can't, in their state of excitement, with the limbic brain just throbbing with excitement, they can't even think through that process. But God is setting the stage so that they confront that. And they look at the cross and they say, what happened here? And they can go back to the scriptures and try to understand God's larger agenda of delivering people, not just from the effects of sin, but from the sin itself. Neville, it looked like you were going to say something there. Were you going to jump in there? I, I was going to say that it, it's, and I don't know if the conversation should go to here, but... No, do it. <laughs> but everything's in bounds. Go. I, I just find there to be a correlation between what was going on there and what we see happening in society right. now, yeah. because... Mm. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. like a lot of us, well, let me not say, I don't want to say us, but many human beings right now are finding themselves in a situation where things are becoming so unpredictable. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's like, man, we need somebody, anybody, like just anybody to just give us some insight to help us to get us out of this mess that the world is becoming. You know what I'm saying? No, listen, um, Neville, I, I'm so glad you went there, actually, because, and I got no problem saying this, there were people on the right end of the American political spectrum that treated Trump as almost a quasi-messianic figure, mm -hmm. and then there were people that thought that Trump was the devil, the devil. and so then what does that make Biden? It makes him a quasi-messianic figure, and just the other day I talked about this that we need to follow the example of Jesus and be aloof from civil government. She says that specifically about and Jesus. Foundationally, and what you know, politics is saying is that these individuals can deliver us from exactly. the effects of sin. And again, God does the deeper work. When she says that Jesus remained aloof from politics, she specifically says the reason was because there was no remedy there. That's right. That, that that's not the actual place. And when we buy into politics, we're saying there is a remedy there. And that, to me, is... is blasphemous really if you think about it if we're fully aligned with one party or the other and think that all of the answers are contained in that in party that platform party, no it's a form of, of idolatry yeah it just seems like the same type of scenario is being constructed right here in the 21st century yeah fair you point it's <laughs> no I, i'm so glad you said that neville because i feel the same way when i was because i missed most of the trump pre I, I missed basically all of the trump presidency because i lived in the last yeah, term <laughs> i missed the last term of the obama presidency and let's be honest okay let's go back to obama obama was treated by many as a kind of messianic figure same right exactly or he was demonized so you're right, and I think part of this is the larger outgrowth of we live in a tremendous celebrity culture right yes, now, right? Yes, like yes. Celebrityism is the new idolatry, right? We turn these people into almost kind of superheroes. They're larger than life, and they live in these big mansions, and they're beautiful, and they don't have a blemish on their face. and <laughs> Which is not a new thing, but it, the thing that is new is the rapidity with which these celebrity just, messages get across with social exactly. media. Exactly. Right. So, so because we're primed, and, and by the way, human beings are primed for idolatry going well back before well, modern. We're primed for worship. We're primed for worship, right. which then can lean very idolatry. easily, tip yeah. into idolatry. Yeah. And so in today's day and age... 
you're exactly right. The world is uncertain, mm -hmm. whether we're talking about environmental uncertainty, economic uncertainty, racial uncertainty. I mean, there's a million uncertainties. So, uh, a measure of empathy for people that buy into a political agenda. Of course. They're looking. They people are grasping for something. And but I feel compelled to say it's not going to work, and, and your trust is misplaced. Correct. Yeah. So, so Jesus here, to, to come back around, and thank you for taking us on that little journey, Neville. Jesus here receives the worship, but he knows, and I'm reading now from the paragraph that begins, never before in his earthly life, listen to this, never before in his earthly life had Jesus permitted such a demonstration. He clearly foresaw the result. Mm. It would bring him to the cross. Mm. Next sentence, two sentences later, he desired to call attention to the sacrifice, he the antitypical lamb by a voluntary act of self. So this is Neville's point, and it's Ellen White's point, that he permits this knowing that a lot of this worship and enthusiasm is wrong-headed and he receives it because he wants all eyes on him mm -hmm. right so far so good we're good with that yes mm -hmm. yes mm -hmm. um did you can we uh just take a little detour back circle back to um this idea about them presenting their palm branches it, can i just yeah. read a line here? yeah go they were and i want to give a little message to the people out there they were unable to present him with costly gifts this is the masses of the poor people that were watching him walk into jerusalem on the colt mm. they were unable to present him with costly gifts but they spread their outer garments as a carpet in his path and they also strewed the leafy branches of the olive and palm in the way the point being whatever i you know what you're going to say yeah. it's awesome it's so cool it's okay if you don't have huge talents or great brilliance or wealth to give to Jesus. Give him your palm branches. Give him your outer garment. Whatever you've got, lay it at his feet. Amen. He's worthy. Amen. Just wanted to throw that no, in. No, listen, that's Amen. an incredible insight, and I yeah. totally missed that. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, it's like, it's like uh, remember Jesus' rebuke of the people that were rebuking or looking down on Mary. He said she did what she could. What she mm. could. Right? Mm -hmm. Like, too often we think, oh, if I could do I more, I would do it. But Jesus mm -hmm. says, yeah, but, but what, what's in your hand? This is Jesus to Moses, right, at the burning bush. What's in your hand? But the A thing staff. Is that the, the, yeah, sorry. Go, no, the, go. The parable of the talents. You know, the guy with the one talent that disobeyed and buried his talent, he was the one with the one talent, and the, other, the others had more. Mm -hmm. And I think what was going on there is God's trying to say, even if you have less talent than other people, even if you have less than them, you're still responsible for sharing what you have. Yeah, every one of us has There's a source. Something. We yeah, all have a exactly. sphere. No, that's really good. So so I can't sing like Neville. You can't sing like Neville, Jen, but you have a beautiful voice. But but we still can sing to the glory of God. We can bring what we can bring. We can and people will sometimes say, people, see people will reach out to me. It's cute. They'll say, hey, do you mind if I preach your sermon? I just like literally preach your exact <laughs> sermons word for word. And you're like, I'm not going to stop you. I'm like, of course. The, the, do it. There's no copyright on the truth. That's right. Right? Like whatever, because I, I recognize yeah. that... It's that a gift. It's a gift. Mm -hmm. And we shouldn't be ashamed of it. I used to really struggle with this. Can I be honest? Sure. When people used to say, oh, David, you're a gifted... Da, 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 and I used to be like, no, no, no. But then I realized, well, that's silly. God it's silly to people. deny that God has gifted people in certain ways. And it's a false humility yeah. to deny the gifting of God mm -hmm. as long as it's used to his glory. That's, That's right. right. That's, That's right. right. That's and you're not saying that you're the most gifted, the greatest no. in the world, that nobody else is gifted like Correct. you. You're saying, I have something, and I have something to lay at Jesus' feet. Neville, do you, how do you sort of handle that? When did you realize, Neville, that you could sing and play the way that you sing and play? When did that happen? Well, I started singing when I was about five or six in church. I grew up in church and we would sing congregational songs and I would sing 
and I started singing at the top of my lungs, <laughs> and I was told that you could hear me above the congregation <laughs> Why do I believe and that? everyone else. So that's sort of when I, you know, discovered that I had a little bit of a of a voice and could sing. What did they let you do it? They were like fine with it, or what happened? Well, my friends, well, the kids would tease me, so I stopped. You know, I, I didn't, I didn't sing that It's much. always that it's way. It's a tall poppy syndrome. <laughs> tall poppies. They were yeah. trying to cut you down to size. Now, how about the playing? When did you realize that you could play? Um, well, I started playing when I was a lot later. I was about 14 years old, so I'm not like a child prodigy or anything. But I started when I was about 14 and um, continued from there. Always enjoyed singing more than playing. So, mm. you know, I... I incredible keyboardist, though. Yeah, amazing. You know, But when he said he wasn't a child prodigy, I was like... Really? <laughs> I beg to differ. Yeah. Um, okay, so all the eyes are on him. It says here that... Um, I'm going to read this paragraph this day. That paragraph that begins, This day, which seemed to the disciples the crowning day of their lives, would have been shadowed with gloomy clouds had they known mm. that the scene of rejoicing was but a prelude to the suffering and death of their master. Although he had repeatedly told them of his certain sacrifice, yet in the glad triumph of the present, they forgot his sorrowful words and looked forward to his prosperous reign on David's throne. They just wanted to pretend that he never said that he was going to be crucified. And they couldn't hear it. And I, I yeah. think it's important for us to bear in mind that the idea of a crucified Messiah was perfectly oxymoronic. It That's made right. no sense. That's right. Right? It, 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 you're talking about something that literally is linguistically silly to them. And if you don't have a framework for something, it's very hard to adopt it into your baseline belief system. Correct. Yeah. You, you're not just going to immediately, instantaneously inculcate, oh, Messiah is going to go to okay. Rome and be crucified. Got it. It's okay. a total paradigm shift. Right. Yeah. So they have... Plus, desire determines belief. To a large extent, more than we realize. So Desire determines belief. It does. And so they didn't want to believe that they would have this self-sacrificing Messiah. They wanted a political Messiah. And so it was very difficult for them to, to want that. And if you don't want to believe something, most people won't believe it. Um, Neville, Red Irony wants me to tell you that people in the Virgin Islands are watching right now. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Give a shout out to your people, Neville. Hey, what's going on, St. Thomas? Miss you guys, love you guys, hope to be back on the island soon. Rock City, big up! Come on now! <laughs> <laughs> just, it's just like Hi. you're saying hello. Hello! <laughs> um, beautiful. God bless you, Neville. I'm so love glad it. you're here. Okay, so all of a sudden, the, the, it continues to grow. New accessions were made, continually to the procession. Are with, you reading this one never before the world? I'm heading there, okay. yeah. Okay. So it's growing, it's growing. Why don't you read that now? Because that's that next paragraph. They're all saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Yeah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Go. Never before had the world seen such a triumphal... This is the best paragraph in the whole thing. I know. This I is know. the so best paragraph. So never before had the world seen such a triumphal procession. It was not like that of the earth's famous conquerors. No train of mourning captives as trophies of kingly valor made a feature of that scene. Okay, I just have to stop. Oh. Prepare yourself to worship. Okay, whether you've read this already or not yet, I'm get not. ready to worship. Because I was like... Okay, go, Jen. I'm just ready. But ready. about the Savior were the glorious trophies mm. of his labors of love for mm. sinful man. Thank you, Jesus. Mm. 
There were the captives whom he had rescued from Satan's power, praising God for their deliverance. The blind whom he had restored to sight were leading the way. The dumb whose tongues he had loosed shouted the loudest hosannas. The cripples whom he had healed bounded with joy and were the most active in breaking the palm branches and waving them before the Savior. You really appreciate what you didn't always have. Um, Widows and orphans. Widows and orphans were exalting the name of Jesus for his works of mercy to them. The lepers whom he had cleansed spread their untainted untainted Mm. garments Mm. in his path and Mm. hailed him as the king of glory. Mm -hmm. Those whom his voice had awakened from the sleep of death were in that throng. Lazarus, whose body had seen corruption in the grave, but who now rejoiced in the strength of glorious manhood, led the beast on which the Savior rode. Worshipping. I'm just over here worshipping right now. Glory, glory to God. I mean, the glory struggle, the captives, the blind, the dumb, the cripples, the widows, the orphans, the lepers, those who had formerly been dead. I mean, right? You know what's special to me about that? Yeah, let's hear it. Is that... You know, in those days, when a king conquered, the people who he subjugated was his trophies, uh, trophies yeah. right? Yeah. His regalia. But, but, but in this case, Jesus is coming as a conquering king, and his trophies are what he's restored. Yes. It's and not those that he's made captive. It's those that he's right, made free. Man, that right. is... And even those who one day he does conquer because some will die, you know, he wished and and paid a price so that they could have been in that throne. Thank you, Neville, for saying, I mean, what, I mean, that's just incredible writing, the imagery there. And as she says, there had never before been a triumphal entry of any king, any monarch Mm. after any battle like Mm. this, Mm. because it's not those that he's taken captive. It's those that he's set free. I mean, what, I mean, there's a story there. Okay. So then now enter stage left, the Pharisees. Right, because the the, the this beauty and this this flourish and it's crescendoing. The enthusiasm is there, and then then the word gets to the temple. The word gets to the religious mucky mucks, the higher ups, and they say, "We got to put a stop to this." Right, and so she says they were burning with envy because one of the themes that emerges again and again is this idea that there's jealousy, professional jealousy, Jesus popularity is eclipsing theirs his star is outshining theirs and so what's really at stake here is not primarily a concern about theology or good orthodoxy it's like hey he's more popular than us and we we need to stop that so can i i did a little research this morning on something called morbid jealousy which is usually studied morbid morbid jealousy jealousy, which is usually studied in married couples and there there is this phenomenon i've seen it as a marriage counselor where one partner becomes extremely jealous of the other partner and, ass- and assumes that they're unfaithful to them. And there's just a whole sort of sequelae of things that happen as a result of that. So I wanted to look specifically at the risks of morbid jealousy and what I found that it was confirmatory behaviors. In other words, they'll do things to confirm their own belief system. Mm. And that was constantly happening with the, Pharise- with the rulers and the Pharisees. Um, harm to self, people become suicidal, I'll kill myself, if you don't, whatever and then risk to others. 17% of all homicides in the U.S. are due to what's called amorous jealousy and possessiveness, according to one study. Amorous? Amorous, love. Oh, amorous, gotcha. Amorous, sorry about that. Gotcha. More than half of morbidity uh, jealous partner, morbidly jealous partners attack their partner. And then bad news here, guys, sorry. In the U.S., a sample of 20 individuals with delusional jealousy, 19 of whom were male. Male, sorry, sorry. 
Silva et al. Uh, found that 13 had threatened to kill their spouse because of alleged infidelity. Of these, nine had actually attacked their spouse. Overall, 12 harmed their spouse, three of them using a weapon. So the point is that these men were powerful and powerful men want dominance. And if they fear they're gonna lose dominance, it's nothing, it has nothing to do with actual love for the partner when it appears Correct. in a marriage. It has everything to do with dominance and control. And when they're about to lose dominance and control, they go into overdrive and that's what happened here. Yeah. Jesus is being worshipped openly for the first time. And they can't handle it. Mm. There's this crowd euphoria. People are basically casting themselves at his feet, and they go into orbit. Bur she says burning, burning with jealousy. With envy. Yeah. Thank you for that research, Jen. That's yeah. so good to know. And yeah. it's, it's not at all surprising to me that 19 of the 20 people that you described there were male. Well, there's something about the, uh, the dominance high aspect. levels of testosterone yeah. that lend itself to more desire for dominance. Yeah, yeah. no, I, and that's I, as far I, as I can see it. <laughs> So I'm going to read this. The scene of triumph. You're not a man hater. No. Certainly not. Uh, the scene of triumph was of God's own appointing. It had been foretold by the prophet, and man was powerless to turn aside God's purpose. So, so this is when they say, "Hey, um, teach, teacher, rebuke your disciples. They're saying wrong things." And Jesus then says, famously and wonderfully, "If if all these people should be quiet, what would happen? The rocks would cry the out. The stones would." cry out. And God has already shown in scripture that he can speak through uh, a whale, he can speak through a rooster, he can speak through a donkey. A donkey. So, so Jesus here is saying, this is so important, this is so prophetic and messianic. If these people were quiet, the rocks would cry out. In other words, you can't stop this. Mm -mm. God has appointed this, God has anointed this, mm -hmm. it's going to happen. And that led me to my word, but I'm not going to tell you what You're it not, is. Okay, You're not ready yet. Okay, so then... As Jesus basically says no in response to the Pharisees' insistence that he quiet them down, mm -hmm. he then comes just up on the crest of a hill and then enter Jerusalem. Mm. Jesus now, you know, gets up on the crest of this hill, looks out, and she paints this beautiful picture. The mm. temple attracted all eyes in stately grandeur. It and towered I above all else. I realized how beautiful it was until I read this beautiful. detailed description. Seeming to it's point almost like to... I could see it. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. how I felt. Yeah. I felt I exactly... Have you been... Any of you been to the Holy Land? No. No, no. Yeah, me neither. I haven't yet been there. By the grace of God, I'm going to lead a tour there, hopefully, later this year or sometime next year. And we get year. free tickets. Yeah, free tickets hey. for Neville and, uh, and Jen, hey, of course. Hey. In stately grandeur, grandeur, it towered above all else, seeming to point toward heaven as if directing the people to the only true and living God. The temple had long been the pride of the glory of the Jewish nation. I thought this was interesting. The Romans also prided themselves on its magnificence. A king appointed by the Romans had united with the Jews to rebuild and embellish it, and the emperor of Rome had enriched it with his gifts. Its strengths, richness, and magnificence had made it, it one, of, one of the wonders, wonders of, of the, the world. world. I'm going to read this next and section, too. And another, then another whole paragraph. Read it if you would, Jen. Big, read beefy that. paragraphs. Read the while the west, westering is such an interesting word. She uses it twice. I like that word. It's got a certain glow to it when yeah. it's setting. While the westering sun was tinting and gilding the heavens, its resplendent glory lighted up the pure white marble of the temple walls wow. and sparkled on its gold-capped pillars. From the crest of the hill where Jesus and his followers stood, it had the appearance of a massive structure of snow set with golden pinnacles. Mm. At the entrance to the temple was a vine of gold and silver with green leaves and massive clusters of grapes executed by the most skillful artists. And I wonder if it was really green. Like, wow. and how did they get it green? This design represented Israel as a prosperous vine. The gold, silver, and living green were combined with rare taste and exquisite workmanship mm. as it twined gracefully about the white and glistening pillars, clinging 
with shining tendrils to their golden ornaments. It caught the splendor of the setting sun, mm. shining as if with a glory mm. borrowed from heaven. Wow. She's a good writer. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I feel like I'm there. I, I'm with yeah. you, Neville. I can yeah. see that. You can see mm. it in your mind. I can see that in my mind. And there's mind's something eye. about sunlight that makes things almost Well, as a photographer, I'm a yeah. lover of photographer. Years ago, I've been, I've been, I'm not a lover of photographer, I'm a lover of photography. And I've been shooting uh, images since I was in high school. And years ago, I took a uh, photography workshop from this really amazing professional photographer. And the workshop was titled Shoot the Light. Mm. Shoot the Light. And his basic thesis was this, that any object as seemingly boring or you know banal as you can imagine, if you put the right light on it, it comes to life. Well, and his idea was that you don't shoot the subject, you shoot the light. We shoot were looking the light. at uh, Norman McGuire's paintings the other day in yes, his home. Yes, he does such a great job. did an incredible job with the light. He's an yeah. amazing oh. command of light. And, and in particular, that one painting mm -hmm. that was in the living room there, yeah. the way the light was coming in there yeah. was absolutely incredible. incredible. So, by the way, Neville, let me just ask you this, because I asked you this yesterday, and the people might be interested in this. You were not always blind. You were born with sight. Yes, I was born with sight uh, six to seven months later, diagnosed with glaucoma, which is a very slow, slowly progressing disease. So I didn't lose my eyesight until I was about 11 or 12. So when we're talking here about sunsets and light and the colors and this description, you have a picture in your mind of what that could have looked like. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I was sharing with you yesterday that one of the last things I remember seeing was a fiery red sunset. Mm. It's just like burned into my consciousness. Was that in VI? Was that in yeah, the yeah, yeah, in the Virgin Islands mm. where I was growing mm. up? I was about. I don't remember exactly how old I was, but this is the last thing that I remember seeing. The sun was like you know setting. You couldn't see the sun, but the sky was this fiery orange, just mm. red color. Mm. Amazing. Oh, it was very beautiful. You know, random fact here. Uh, I think it's Ecclesiastes says, uh, truly the light is sweet and such a pleasant thing it is for the eyes to behold the sun. I prescribe sunlight exposure to my depressed and anxious clients. And yeah. I tell them to get up early in the morning and immediately go outside. And that's what I do here on the farm. Because what happens is there's a boost. If you get early exposure to light, there's a boost in serotonin. And it's really dependent on getting the light in your eyes. That's what triggers that boost of serotonin, good oh. brain chemicals. Okay, yeah. super yeah. practical. Yeah. So the westering sun, everybody's looking at it. They imagine now that maybe Jesus is going to say something profound. Maybe he's going to give some speech. Who knows what he's going to do and say. Nobody, not one person, has any idea that mm. what he's about ready to say and do is going to be said and done. Nobody expects this, mm -hmm. right? So Jesus gazes upon the scene. The vast multitude hush their shouts, spellbound by the sudden vision of beauty. All eyes turn upon the Savior, expecting to see in his countenance the admiration they themselves feel. But instead of this, they behold what? A cloud, a cloud of, of sorrow. sorrow. They are surprised and disappointed to see his eyes fill with tears and his body rock to and fro like a tree before the coming tempest while a wail of anguish bursts from his quivering lips as if from the depths of a broken heart. And then she says two times, what a sight. So we call that, in psychology, we call that flooding when someone's limbic brain gets suddenly hyper-aroused, and that is to account for the movement. The, you the know, rocking. Because it's a way of trying to metabolize those stress hormones that are flooding his body right now. And she paints a picture here that's frankly, it's disorienting. I mean, she says, in godlike grief, 
Mm. In sympathy with human woe, Israel's king was in tears. Not silent tears of gladness, but tears mm. and groans, mm -hmm. groans mm -hmm. of unsuppressible agony. Mm -hmm. So this is where the whole scene turns. And there's this pivot to what is, what? What's what he is he doing? Why yeah. is he heaving like that? And Jesus is trying even to speak, but he can't even hardly get the words out because as you say, his limbic system has so I taken over the whole of his body that, and pe what are people thinking? What do you think that people are thinking when they see that? He's supposed to be the powerful figure that is gonna throw off Roman bondage. How can he break down in tears? He's not gonna be able to do it because they associate again that, you know, that intense emotionality with weakness. And so they assume that he's, maybe he's not the person that we thought was capable enough to do this. Yeah. Because they perceive the emotion as a, as a sign of weakness. I just wrote here the scene. I mean, and then she does this really great thing. Ellen White does this, she, just a, such a masterful writer. But she says here that she takes in these scenes and she's very clear. Jesus was not weeping for himself. He was weeping in anticipation of what was coming on Jerusalem and, and the world. And then she says, you know, just before him was Gethsemane, and she says mm -hmm. something about that. And then the Sheep Gate says something mm -hmm. about that. Mm -hmm. And then Calvary, some, you know. Mm -hmm. So he's looking at this whole scene, and yet his tears are not for himself. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. So there's a couple things about the emotionality of Jesus here that are interesting. What, the point that he just brought out, that he had others directed um, emotional pain, but also that he was right down with his primary emotions. So sorrow, fear, and frustration are primary emotions. Anger tends to be a secondary emotion. Most men in a situation like this with the emotional load that he was you know, confronting at that moment, the incredible emotional pain he was experiencing would manifest it as anger. Anger. But instead he showed the primary emotions and I think in doing that demonstrated for us a, a better way to handle our emotions, to be honest about them. And it's really hard for us to do because... How do you keep from going from that primary into the secondary emotion? having it spill times, over into yeah, anger a lot of times what happens is the motives of the individual the deep like i what i think is a substrata even to our emotional life which tends to be a very core part of our character but even beneath that is our motives our drives what we're actually you know purposing and striving for in our lives and mm. i think if our motives are entitlement and self-exaltation and all that stuff we'll get angry because our you know our self has been threatened but instead his sorrow uh, you know, reached out because other oh, people, you wow. know, he's a savior. Of so this is a real window into what made Jesus tick. That's right. Because and, here and at his most, him. at his most emotionally primitive, at his most right. emotionally Primal. basic, what yeah. comes out mm -hmm. is not anger or frustration. Because he's offended as God, which he could be. He I could mean, have been. He, he could it would have been a righteous indignation. That's but what right. comes out is a deep sorrow for, for others. Other and wow. it still would have been right if he was offended. But at That's the end right. of the day, it, it manifested itself in a way that was in the interest of those who he was trying to save. Beautiful. And so it's okay Beautiful. to have righteous indignation when you're God, but an even higher law right. is the law of, you know, loving humanity mercy. to death. Yeah, wanting to save. Grace, mercy. Yeah. It's incredible. I love the idea that this is Jesus at his most emotionally raw and that that gives us a window into what's happening into the divine heart. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's beautiful. Unlike, unlike the Pharisees who we just talked about a moment ago were mm -hmm. burning with envy because mm -hmm. what's at the core of their being is the desire for self-exaltation, etc. And so when that manifests, it comes out as anger, mm -hmm. right? That's right. Wow. This because is there's self in there. 
Of course, the people there are not reading with the depth and the profundity that we've just described here. They're not picking up on any of this. They're yeah. just, I think, confused. They're That's... just freaking out because the guy at the vanguard of their movement is just broken down. And they're like, you know, is he uh, up for it? Yeah, that, that's unawkward. Yeah. Awkward, yeah, exactly. right? That's not going as they had hoped. <laughs> that's right. Then this line, and she's going to say this one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten times. She's going to say something. And this is the first time, first time she says it. Same paragraph, she says, He saw what was in her guilt of rejecting her Redeemer and what she might have been. Yeah. Might have been. Might have been. She says that over mm. and over and over again. What might have been. What might have been. Mm. And uh, in broken utterances of grief, he says, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things mm. that make for your peace. And listen to this. Here the Savior paused and left unsaid what might have been the condition of Jerusalem. Jumping down just a little bit. She might have stood forth in the pride of prosperity. There would have been no armed soldiers that might have blessed Jerusalem, Mm. might through him have been healed. Oh, my goodness. Isn't this incredible? She... Uh, they would have peace would have gone forth to all the nations she mm. would have been the world's diadem of glory oh. but in the bright picture of what Jerusalem might have been mm. ten times you know that fear of missing out is a very primal part of human nature and she's appealing to that here she's saying look it's possible to miss out and you know it's important that we not you know escalate that fear of missing out because that can become very pathological when it's not really true but fear of missing out is a real thing because you might miss out. And they missed out over and over again. Here's all the things that might have been. Could have been. That never were. So we've talked a little bit about this in the Desire of Ages in our DA with DA study. When God takes in the whole of reality, time and space and agents and all of it, he sees not only what is, he sees what could have yeah. been. And this is what philosophers refer to as, or what are sometimes referred to by philosophers and others as counterfactuals, <laughs> things that could have been but weren't. So, for example, Jen, you married Michael and had Allison and Kimmy. Right. But if you hadn't married Michael, you would have perhaps married someone else, and then you would have had different children. God is aware of every, every possible permutation of reality. Yeah. Incredible. So, yeah. so God here sees not just what was, he sees what could have been. Yeah. He sees human potential. Yeah. Could and you imagine the grief that, I, at least I can't imagine the grief that that could have brought God. Because picture yourself as a parent, mm. and you're no, talking to your child, easy. and you're telling your child, listen, <laughs> don't do this, man. Right. Don't come do on, this. Come I mean, I, I have a, a 25-year-old stepson. So sometimes I'll talk to him, and I'll say, look, look, bro, don't, don't do this. this. This is a bad choice. And then they still go and do it right. anyway, right? Mm-hmm. And then you just like, and then you see the consequence of the choice, and it breaks your heart, mm-hmm. man. Because you know what? It, just, it, it was not necessary. It exactly, could have gone another way. Man, exactly. And you see, I mean, I see this with a lot of young friends that I have. You say, listen, man, don't, don't, you know, I've been there before you. I know what this is like. I've gone down this road. I've even made this mistake. So mm. you don't have to make it, man. Don't make this mistake. And then they still go and do it. And it just hurts your heart. So I can imagine God is like... But if you thought it was inevitable for them to do it, it wouldn't hurt your heart. So subjecting yourself to the fact that there's an alternative is what brings that pain. And that's what God is encountering here, right? Because he sees... What could have been. Yes, that's right. Like he could just say, oh, well, they were going to do what they were going to do. I couldn't do anything. you know. But he sees that they didn't have to do that. So agency is at the root of this thing. The free will of human beings and the fact that they could choose one way or the other is at the root of this incredible regret mm-hmm. when they choose the wrong thing. 
it's interesting that Neville goes there because that's exactly where she goes. She actually makes the very point there, and you probably were aware of that, Neville, but she actually says, I'll see if I can find it here, that basically when a, when a parent... Uh, Jerusalem, I'm reading it here, Jerusalem had been the child of his care, yeah. and as a tender father mourns over a wayward mm -hmm. son, so Jesus wept over the beloved city. Mm -hmm. Right? So, I mean, right now I have you know, two sons that I love very much, and fortunately, happily, they're making really good decisions, and I'm super proud of them. But, and I hope they continue to do that, but I can imagine, and right. it actually right. even kills me to think about it, if they started making decisions that were so radically contrary to their own best interest, not just to what I want, right, right, but right, to their right, own right, best right, interest, right, that would right. pierce me in my soul. And, I mean, Neville, you have a 23-year-old stepson or 25? Yeah, 25. I mean, I'm not But you also have a 9-year-old yes, yes, son, yes. Neville Jr., and, yes. I mean... You're at the outset of that. So I'm... Being a, a parent is hard. I'm it's a, not easy, man. <laughs> being a parent is hard. Oh, man, you're telling me. Full disclosure here, I'm, I'm a parent, and one of my kids became a drug addict, and she's passed it now. She's clean. She's Hallelujah. doing well. Hallelujah. And I'm very and proud of her. She's, she's wonderful. a wonderful person. I love her. Uh, but I get insomnia when I'm distressed, uh, and I won't be able to sleep the whole night. I'll wake up in the middle of the night and not be able to sleep. Um, but I've never in my life been up all night long except twice when my daughter was going through that. And you can ask my husband, I would get to the point where I was catatonic. I couldn't respond, I couldn't. Once I lay on my bed and just started to wail, and he came alongside me and stroked me and just tried to comfort me, but I, I would become inconsolable because I was so terrified about what was going on. I think that, I think that that's I not unlike what's happening here with yes, Jesus. Um, Christ came to save Jerusalem with her children, but pharisaical pride, hypocrisy, jealousy, and malice had prevented him from accomplishing his purpose. Then she does this. Jesus knew the terrible retribution. He saw Jerusalem compassed with armies. Mm -hmm. He saw that the stubbornness of the Jews. He beheld Calvary. He saw the wretched inhabitants suffering torture. On the, he, he's, she paints this really disgusting picture here of what's going to happen in the siege of Jerusalem uh. in AD 70. And then she says in that final sentence there, Mother's well might... Ugh. I know. Well might the Savior weep in agony of the fearful scene. And she's very restrained. You know, she doesn't talk. No, she doesn't write graphically a lot, but she does admit that mothers would devour their... Because the it's Bible incredible. does. That's exactly right. I mean, yeah. the, the picture here, the portrait of what could have been in stark and... Mm. And... Grim facts. Grim contrast to what was. Jesus is here weeping. Again, everybody's perfectly confused about this. And... You know, the sun begins to set, and then she makes this point several times. She says, it was not too late. It was not yet too oh, late. She may yet be saved. I mean, mm -hmm. if you know anything at all about the prophecies of Daniel, like in, in Daniel chapter 9, you have this 490-year prophecy, right. and you're yeah. literally down to the last, like, three years yeah, of a 490-year yeah, yeah, prophecy. But you're not there yet. But you're not there yet. No. And so even now, and Jesus has tried everything. He's tried kindness. He's tried healing. He's tried miracles. He's tried, you know, just open uh, speech. But when we get into Matthew chapter 22, 23, and beyond, he's just going to go into full just full open rebuke mm -hmm. trying to like startle them to mm -hmm. arrest their mm -hmm. attention and say mm -hmm. come on fellas the time is running out mm -hmm. this is your moment mm -hmm. this is your moment shake them um, so then uh, let's see beautiful and unholy city she locked herself in by her own impenitence she may yet be saved and then 
we get come down to the end here, which I thought was very interesting. It says, Reports have reached the rulers in Jerusalem that Jesus is approaching the city with a great concourse of people, but they have no welcome for the Son of God. So they see this whole swath of people right. coming down yeah. from the... Yeah. It's like a swarm of it's people huge. just making their way down. By the way, there was a word here that I didn't know. I'd never heard this word before. If I had, I had forgotten it. It says, um, despised his warnings and was about to imbrue mm-hmm. her hands I, I underline the same in his word. blood. Did you know yeah, that word, yeah. imbrue? Yeah. It means Saturated. to stain, yeah. to stain like a hand mm-hmm. or a sword. Mm-hmm. I, I'd never heard that I word before. I thought it meant to submerge. Oh, okay. Yeah, isn't that why? Imbrue. Yeah. I didn't know it. Um, so listen to this. In fear, this is the religious leaders, they go out to meet him, hoping to disperse the throng. As the procession is about to descend the Mount of Olives, it is intercepted by the rulers, they inquire the cause of this tumultuous rejoicing as they question, who is this? The disciples, this is fascinating because this is not <laughs> described in any of the accounts. It's not in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. But this is interesting. The disciples, filled with the spirit of inspiration, answer this question in eloquent strains. They repeat the prophecies concerning Christ. Ask Abraham. Ask Adam. Wait a minute, wait, wait. Before yeah, you do that, before Just you do incredible. that, this is, this is too good. Like, this is such a cool ending. But anyway... Yeah. Um, Listen to what she says. This is the paragraph before the one you just read. Yet again, the Spirit of God speaks to Jerusalem. So this is the last, kind of the last appeal. And before the day is done, another testimony is born to Christ. The voice of witness. She's really building tension here literarily by saying it a few times. You know? mm. Another testimony. The voice of witness is lifted up, responding to the call from a prophetic past. If Jerusalem will hear the call, if she will receive the Savior who is entering her gates, she she may may yet be saved. saved. So she's building tension through that whole paragraph. And then she does that paragraph, and then she gets into what the witness actually was. Because when I first read this, I was like, okay, where's the witness? I thought some guy was going to come out of nowhere. The witness is the disciples. But the the witness is what comes out of the mouths of the disciples. Quoting scripture. scripture. just read it. It's so powerful. Well, before we read that, let let me share with you something very interesting. Listen to this. Now, this was in the John account, and I had maybe not noticed. Well, I got two things here. Let me read you the, the Luke account and then the John account. That last verse, I, maybe I'm missing something here, but this jumped out at me big time. Oh, no. It's not in the John account. Let's see here. Give me Daily this. teaching. Let me just find this here. Just t- talk about something here for a second. I want to find just this. Just another little... Oh, you were going to sing anyway. Yeah, give us, so give us give a little something in a while. Give me just a second here. Anyway. Say one now? Give us a little song. <laughs> a song? I'm so wrapped up in the moment. <laughs> now you're asking for a song. I know. I'm terrible. Do the doxology. It's a very worshipful thing, and this is all worship. Okay. Okay. Oh, give us the go. best doxology we've ever Praise heard. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Are we there yet? Oh, praise Him, all creatures here below. Oh, praise Him Stop. 
Danville, I love you. I love you so much. I found it, by the way. Oh, the Lord is good, man. Amen, brother. The Lord is good. The Lord is good. So listen to this. Mark 11, 11. I thought this was so interesting. And Jesus went into Jerusalem. This is after all of this. And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. Mm-hmm. So when he had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late. All the symbols of himself. He went mm-hmm. out to Bethany with the twelve. Hmm. What a scene. And I thought, I've never, I've never noticed that before. Just walked in mm-hmm. and checked it out. Jesus literally goes into Jerusalem. He wa- mm-hmm. She doesn't tell this part, but Mark does. He goes into the temple and just looks at all the things. Mm. And he's kind of like alone, and he's been in the midst of this mob, you know. So It must have de-escalated somehow. Yeah. Yeah, it was somehow. getting late because it yeah. was the evening time. Yeah. He has a look around. He, and he had his moment. He had his moment, and then he goes to Bethany, probably to the house of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Lazarus, yeah. Right. Okay, so Jen, do you want to read that closing? Well, let's read it. Let's, um, yeah, let's read it. Let's alternate, okay? Okay. Now, read you, one, you, you read one, then I read one. Then Neville, no, whoops. You want to read one, Neville, for us? <laughs> do you just remember it? <laughs> okay. Um, Probably not. So here's the witness that comes forward. Okay. She says, in eloquent strains, they were, they just kind of, and these were not educated men that had they lots of poetry prophesying. but they start prophesying and speaking eloquently. So she says, in eloquent strains, they repeat the prophecies concerning Christ. Adam will tell you, it is the seed of the woman that shall bruise the serpent's head. Ask Abraham, he will tell you, it is Melchizedek, king of Salem, king of peace. Jacob will tell you, he is Shiloh of the tribe of Judah. Isaiah will tell you, Emmanuel, wonderful, counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, the prince of peace. Jeremiah will tell you the branch of David, the Lord, our righteousness. David will, Daniel will tell you he is the Messiah. Hosea will tell you he is the Lord of hosts. The Lord is his memorial. John the Baptist will tell you he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The great Jehovah has proclaimed him from his throne. This is my beloved son. We, his disciples, declare this is Jesus the Messiah, the Prince of Life, the Redeemer of the world. And the Prince of the powers of darkness acknowledge him, saying, I know thee, who thou art, the Mm. Holy One of Israel, of God. I mean, she ends with the devils, and that's it. That's how it ends. (laughs) Talk about stone crying out. I mean, was anybody else like, that's the end? That's the end? That's it? That's how it ends? She's usually very practical, you know, application at the end. But what she does here, and I think what's going on is, because sometimes I'll, I'll always end a sermon with practical take-home stuff. Yeah. But sometimes I'll try to lead the people into exactly what I am trying to get them to take home. So that's what she does here, I think, is she's like, instead of telling you how to worship, I'm going to lead you into it right now. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's what happened to me. I'm like reading this and I'm waiting for the end. This is how, you know, the practical stuff and it's not there. And I exactly. Go, so this Whoa. is an unusual chapter. Mm-hmm. I didn't go back and look at every other chapter, but mm-hmm. I think this might be the first or one of the very first chapters. We're like 60 plus chapters deep where it doesn't, it doesn't end do that. with that sort of a- appeal and the practical application and the Take moral exhortation. Mm-hmm. It just ends. Mm-hmm. It's just like I saw Hannah said, mic drop. Mm-hmm. It's just like. All these incredible prophesyings that come from the, the disciples, mic drop, including including the powers of darkness. Mic drop, done, chapter, pull the curtains, and you're just like, what? At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus, Jesus Christ, Christ is, is Lord, Lord to, to the, the glory, glory of, God of God the Father. The Father. Every knee will bow. Every we have a choice as to bow the knee right now, or we can wait until the evidence is so compelling that we can no longer deny it. But I appeal to each one of you and and anybody within, you know, this forum, bow now. Amen. 
It'll be Bow too now. late then. So, so an incredible chapter. Let's just go down, um, Neville, Jen, and um, I might chime in as well. What was, for you two, what was the point of this chapter? We'll start with you, Jen. Okay, so the point to me was God is the God of all people. So he's kind of, there's this, all of this uh, prophecy. This is a very prophecy-rich, eschatology-rich uh, chapter and there's like a lot of timelines that are now being opened up to our understanding but on a personal level um, and God is basically saying hey if you guys don't do it the the stones will cry out mm -hmm. and and we can sort of see him hinting toward the time when the gospel goes to the Gentiles mm. um, so he's the God of all people and if his people fail to worship him others will oh yeah. the stones will cry out yeah okay Neville any what, what would you say if you had to kind of summarize a single idea. What, what do you think the point of the chapter was? I would say the point is that things are not always what they seem. Mm. Because it started off one way Beautiful. and ended like on like as far on the opposite side of the spectrum That's as it point. could go. Yeah. Yeah. Not and, brilliant. Um I would say that that like I sort of said before you know, we're seeing the same kind of scenario being created in our world today. Yeah. And I would say that especially those of us who are believers right now who are sort of looking for earthly saviors. Come on. I would say that we need to go back and revisit this um, event yeah. in, in, in history to see how this whole thing played out mm. and to... You know, come to terms with the disappointment that human beings feel when we are let down. Mm. You know, because they were let down um, when this whole thing ended in the cross. Because there was a—I don't remember if it's Luke or mm. one of the Gospels, but uh, one of the disciples is, uh, is quoted as saying, "And we thought that he was the one that yeah. redeemed Israel. Israel. Yeah. We thought, oh. and he did, right? Yeah, that's but, right. But on a much larger scale than they, than they realize. And that's the, my next point. You know, the next point is that God was doing a thing, but it was so beyond what they could see that they just couldn't see it. Mm. And so what I would like to say to those who are watching this and who will watch it in the future mm -hmm. is that when we see all these things going on in the world, God is doing a thing. Come on. But it's a lot bigger than you and I can oh, really see, man. Preach. You know, we got to go to the scriptures, especially now. Because when Jesus came up off that cross and he met those people on the road to Emmaus, he could have said, here am I, I'm Christ. What is, what's the matter with you guys? Mm. But he didn't do that. The Bible he tells us he word. went back to the word, man. And he was like expounding on the prophecies preach. that 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 told all of the readers who he is and what he would do mm. and then they realized that it was Jesus all mm. along and so i just want to say that this 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 chapter gives me a lot of hope but mm -hmm. the main point again is that god is doing a thing that is far beyond what we could see and we need to remain faithful Beautiful. Neville, when you, I love it when you say that things are not always what they seem. Mm -hmm. It seemed like it was the triumphal entry, but mm -hmm. it's actually the prelude to the cross. That's right. Uh, it seemed like he was going to take the throne of David, but instead he was lifted up on a Roman instrument of torture. I mean, mm -hmm. things were not what they seemed. Mm -hmm. And I, I love the way your two points dovetail together. 
the reason that things were not what they seemed was because God was doing a bigger thing mm-hmm. than these shallow, self-serving human minds could conceive of. That's right. That's and man, right. what a reminder for us today. Okay, second question that... No, I'm, I'm just going to go with you okay. two. I love okay. it. Second question is... We'll start with you now, Neville. What about the person? What do we learn about the person of God from this chapter? What jumps out at you? What do we learn about Jesus? I would say, you know, Jesus tends to look at us the same way uh, he looks at Abraham. Mm. But we have to submit to that. Hmm. You know, in Romans four seventeen. You know, uh, God is quoted as saying to Abraham, I have made you. Mm. And that's, a, you know what I'm saying? I have made you the father of many nations. He told Abraham that before it even happened, right? Yeah, beautiful. And so God has already made us to be kings and priests. But we have to surrender to the process in order for that to happen. Because he's not going to force that on anybody. Mm. And so the same thing we see happening here. You know, God had made Jerusalem this, but they didn't want it. Yeah. So it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, know? God, God, this is back to the potential thing, isn't it? That right, he sees right. what can be, right, but I love right. what you say there. We still have to submit yeah, we to... we still got to submit to that process. Because we're agents. We're, we, we can say no, and Jerusalem, unfortunately, through insularity and insubordination, has been saying no for centuries. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, and still saying well. no. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay, Jen, how about you, the person? The person, uh, the thing that jumped out at me the most was that he was emotionally and spiritually transparent. And I think that's bound up in, that's kind of modern language describing what Jesus meant when he said, or part of what he meant when he said he was the truth. Um, Mm. So I just love the emotional transparency of Jesus when he wept publicly um, because he was authentic. He was present with his emotions and he conveyed those emotions. And I just know from the work that I do that that's a really important skill to have. And so I really appreciate it that he set that example for us. Jen, I, I can't thank you enough for the insight that you gave there about how when Jesus is here crying and weeping, that what we're seeing, this is a window into what makes Jesus Jesus, like his emotional DNA. Mm-hmm. This is the most bottom-most stru- yeah. substrata this is the bedrock of who he is. There's no need for Jesus to control his emotions in an artificial or inauthentic way because his motives are pure. This is who he is. And I think the reason that Beautiful. we become sort of emotionally cut off, you know, there's this like gap between our what we think and believe and our emotions is because we don't have that level of authenticity and we, we aren't free to be present wow. emotionally. He was yeah. perfectly free. That's right. Okay, uh, Jen, we'll start with you now. How do we pray this chapter? How do I think, pray it? Yeah, I think uh, what I wanted to pray was make me willing to lose what is precious to me. Because Jesus faced losing what was precious to him. He loved Jerusalem. He mm. had hopes and mm. dreams for them, each and every one of them. And then for the nation collectively, because, of course, we know that he wasn't rejecting Jews. He was, it was, you know, things were winding down for his special, unique relationship. With the calling, the, the covenantal nation, calling of the nation. The covenantal calling being focused on temporal Israel, and then it expanded to a larger definition of Israel. So there's all kinds of nuances of that issue, but basically he had to let go of something that was precious to him. And that can be very difficult. Um, if you love your child, you know, if you've been through having a child stray, uh, it's very painful, and sometimes you have to let them go and make a bad decision. Or even a spouse that decides they yes. want to be unfaithful. That's right. That's you, right. you not only are letting go of them, you're letting go of memories of the past, of what might have been. 
what often happens to people when they're disappointed in something is they'll they'll be disappointed in God and they'll kind of blame God. And what I want to hold out to you is rather than being disappointed in God, why don't you realize that he knows exactly how you feel? He's right with you and mm. suffering of well, he has empathy for you because he knows what it's like to let go of something precious to He's him. He's been there. Yeah. Um, Neville, how do we pray this chapter from your perspective? My perspective is that, Lord, help me to recognize opportunities, the opportunities that you are placing before me. Mm. Help me not to miss those. Give me enough spiritual insight into your word to recognize when the, the, uh, the big picture is, ha- is about to happen, you know what I'm saying? Yes, when those come on, big come events on. are about to happen in terms of prophecy and st- stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But also just in my own personal life, you know, help me to recognize your leading yeah. so that, yeah. you know, when the might have, I don't have to experience the might have beens. I could say, I could say, this was what God wanted for me. And because, you know, he, he gave me the insight, I was able to take advantage of it. By you his know, grace. That, by, of course, by his Beautiful. grace and through the leading of his spirit. Mm-hmm. Because if they, if they had really understood the, the, the scriptures through the leading of, of the spirit of God, they would have recognized the word. Because I remember you said that there's a word that we have to... Yeah, yeah, yeah. The word yeah, yeah, came yeah, yeah. to my mind. So I'll talk about that. Okay, we'll be there in just a second. Mm-hmm. Um, so then we'll go into Ville. We'll start with you. How do you practice this chapter? Is there any... Mm-hmm. Point where you can say, here's a point of practical application on this chapter. This is how we practice the chapter, Your King is Coming. Well, um, number one, be honest with your emotions. Mm, Jesus was honest with his emotions. Love it. You know what I'm saying? Be be, be willing to acknowledge the way you feel and and be willing to express it in a wholesome way. Mm. You know, to those who you love and care about. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Um, Another thing, again, would be, you know, to, even though the chapter doesn't really cover this, but to be willing to adapt to disappointment because they, yeah. they were pretty disappointed. And, of course, in the chapter, Jesus hasn't gotten to the cross yet. But to not lose that hope. Of course, I have the hindsight because we know the end of the story. Yeah. And I think because we, we know the end of the story we should look at all the little minor events in our life through the lens of the big picture. Come on. And it makes it a lot easier to, mm. to deal with life. At least for me, it makes life a lot easier to deal with. Because when I experience those kind of things, I can immediately revert to what God is doing in my life and his expectations for me and the wonderful plans of hope and the future that he has for me. Mm. And then it makes, you know, the, the disappointments a lot easier. And sure does. Yeah, same, same thing that they went through. He that has a why to live. Yeah, that's right. And I'm I was thinking the disciples would have been bitterly disappointed. They would not have understood. She doesn't really tease that out. But after this incredible time of prophesying, they they, they have that little moment of lucidity there. But mm-hmm. still, they're going to be devastated. I mean, Peter's going to be denying. Okay, Jen, how do we practice the chapter? I just want to incorporate more on worship into my day-to-day experience. We're built for awe. We're built for worship. And we have the advantage of not... Everybody's going to worship something. Everybody. Because we're built that way. That's true. And so we have the advantage of directing our worship toward the one who's really worthy of it. And Mm. I know from research that even when people are indiscriminate in what they worship, the experience of worship is still beneficial to human character, morality, ethics, 
uh, mental health. So why not direct it toward the one who deserves it? Yeah, beautiful. Yeah. So to live a worshipful life. That's right. Everything we do can become an act of worship if we yeah. see it through that lens. That's right. Amen. Okay, now let's ask people here on Instagram, what was your word? And then uh, I'll go to Navil and Jen and myself. Um, got a lot of amens coming in here. What was your word? for? It'll be interesting to see because this was not an obvious one, right? For me, at least. I, I'll be interested to see if any... Triumphant. Okay. So Hannah says, triumph or triumphant. Very good, because it's the triumphant entry. Ooh, insuppressible. That was my word. Insuppressible? Yes. What in the world? Incredible. Wow, great minds think alike. Okay, might, selfless, hosanna, emancipated, expectations, triumph, sacrifice. If, Neville, if any of these are your word, no, just I say on. I haven't yet. heard mine yet either. Yeah. Worship, hosanna. I almost had hosanna. Worship, Tears, interesting. Weep or wept, says Cassandra. Uh, triumphal, Kent Kelly says, worship. Uh, Sherry says, triumph. Husterome says, royal, coming all the way from Kenya. Uh, good, good word. Heart, exultation, bereft. Wow, good word. Uh, received. Jennifer, what was your daily awe program? Okay, we'll come back to that. Mm -hmm. Necessary. If, oh, oh, I like that, Jarbrew. Yeah, okay. Michelle says, saved. Rich says, cross. Anne-Marie says, expectation. Emancipation, interesting, because they were emancipated, but not in the way they expected. Messiah, foretold, love, understanding, rescued. Oh, this is going to be another one of those where my word is not guessed. Have you heard yours yet, Neville? No. Mm -mm. Emotional. Inconsolable. Inconsolable. Wow, that's a good word. Leading. Okay, Neville, right. my word. What was your word? Let's hear it. It's taken from Zechariah nine nine. It's the one. It's the one that jumped out to me the most. Lowly. Oh, lowly. You know, this, this, I, uh, tell us about it. Well, because it's funny. My word comes from Zechariah nine nine two, and I got a little moment there where I thought we're going to end up with the same word, but I chose <laughs> a different word. <laughs> well, you know, the, there's there's a verse in Hebrews thirty verse five. It says, "Every word of God is pure." Yes. He's a shield to those who trust in him. And, you know, Zechariah talks about all this stuff that Jesus would do, that he's the king and blah, blah, blah. And so they quoted this verse. But I guess they didn't give thought to the word lowly. Mm. And if they had given thought to that They'd word... They'd have been like, what? You know, that doesn't make sense. But it would have, have shielded them somehow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it would have shielded them somehow. That's why I like that shield to those who put their trust mm. in him it would have shielded them from the disappointment beautiful you know what i'm saying there's a lot more i could say about that but okay let me read you zechariah 9 9 and see if you can guess my word if i can guess yeah it, either just... of you you or jen okay. right. so i'll read it to you again this is how the chapter opens this is how the whole chapter opens rejoice greatly o daughter of zion shout o daughter of jerusalem behold your king is coming to you he is just and having salvation lowly that was neville's word and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Shout. Good guess. Neville, you got a guess? Uh, what my word is? Rejoice? Good guess. My, my word was behold. I was thinking that, but I didn't want to say <laughs> The reason that my word was behold, behold yeah. was because that's what Ellen White does in this chapter. She doesn't make the practical application. She just, she just gets you to She behold. just paints that's the right. picture and says, look. That's right. Look at this. Mm -hmm. Look. 
And then she does this. Listen to this chapter. She says, he saw Jerusalem compassed with armies. He saw the stubbornness of the Jews. He beheld Calvary. He saw the wretched. So we are invited to look to Jesus who wasn't, he went into the temple. Remember, we just saw that in Mark 11 to see all the things. So we're invited to look at Jesus looking at what could have been. And so I just love that invitation. Behold, and and I love the fact that there's no practical application here. I think that was a strategic move by Ellen White because she always does that. She always does those appeals, that practical application. But here, she just cuts short, brings us to that point of worship. And as you said, Jen... You usher people into the experience. She's ushered us into the yeah. experience. And I'm wondering if you, Neville, would be so kind to sing us any other verse of a song... That may usher us into That may usher us, continue to bring worship. us into that experience of worship. You got anything for us? Oh Lord, you're beautiful. Your face is all I seek. Cause when your eyes are upon this child, your grace abounds to me. Oh, Lord, you're beautiful. Your face is all I seek. And when your eyes are upon this child, your grace abounds to me. So I will turn my eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of the earth will grow strangely Father in heaven, thank you for having been with us on day 66 of DA with DA. Thank you for Neville and Jennifer. Um, Father, all of those that have tuned in, what a blessing to have beheld Jesus, mm -hmm. to have seen him in all of his glory. Father, an unexpected glory, an unanticipated glory, a glory that was confusing then but is so beautiful now with, mm -hmm. as Neville said, the benefit of hindsight. We can look back mm -hmm. and see what they could not have seen. And Father, we are now set up to receive mm -hmm. Jesus as the true king, yes. not as a king that looks like the other monarchs and royal figures that have occupied history, but Father, a king mm -hmm. who leads a procession, not of those mm -hmm. that he has taken captive, but of those that he has set free. Mm -hmm. Father, we want to be those people. Yes. We, we claim right now the promise. Jesus has promised us, if the Son shall make you free, mm -hmm. you shall be free indeed. Mm -hmm. So Father, we receive that freedom. And help us 
day to day to have that experience of worship, of awe, of realizing the bigger picture, of going back to the word and not trusting in the mob mentality or even in religious leaders, but going to the text so that we can know what is coming. Father, thank you for this time that we've had here. And please give us a great day now of worship, of awe, and of deep, deep appreciation to you for all that you are to us in the powerful, saving name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.